Hi, I'm Judy Stewart, and this is Unpaused, a podcast for women wanting to reinvent their careers after a break from work. There's a bright green door about three kilometres from where I live, and over it a sign that says, simply, Margot McKinney. Step inside, though, and you step into the world of a fourth-generation jeweller who has built a global fine jewellery empire. In May 2022, Richemont, a Swiss luxury goods conglomerate which owns Cartier, Bucciolati and Van Cleef and Arpels, announced a combined annual sales result of 11 billion euros, an increase of 49% from the previous year for its jewellery division. It seems Margot's onto something. High-end jewellery is back. Run into Margot on any given day and you'll see her bejeweled with rings and ropes of pearls when all around her, everyone else is in sandals and sneakers. How does she carry it off? Well, that's the story you're about to hear. Having hit rock bottom in her early 40s, she came back by backing her own belief that if she liked a piece of jewellery, even if it was shamelessly bold, others would surely follow. And follow they did. She's now the second biggest supplier of jewellery to Neiman Marcus, the United States' biggest luxury department store chain. Recognising both her talent and success as local girl made good, she has just closed a blockbuster retrospective of the pieces that made her career, staged here at the Museum of Brisbane. Not surprisingly, it was a sellout from the day it opened. If there's one thing I've learned about Margot, it's that she is bold in everything she does. This is apparent in every step of the journey she takes in that role, from selecting a stone or pearl, right through to weaving the stories of the miners and pearl farmers who supply her, often giving her first pick. Sharing those stories with her clientele has sometimes meant the difference between closing a sale and not. She prefers stones that are huge and brilliant, always full of character, mixes and matches for colour, fuchsia with orange, turquoise with green, and fashions them into statement necklaces and rings, bracelets, earrings and cuffs. Her own Baroque pearls, Two strands at a minimum, perhaps with a diamond drop to anchor it thrown in, are nothing short of remarkable. And all this originates in the most casual city, in the most laid-back country in the world. How she backed herself after an unsuccessful first marriage brought her to a personal standstill. The people who saw the spark of talent in her first small collection of dramatic pieces. The relationships she holds dear with the suppliers of jewels, gems, opals and pearls. And her vigilance and involvement in every step of their evolution from stone to jewel have together conjured phenomenal success for Margot. This success has also transformed her into an important ambassador for a country better known for exporting its minerals in their crudest state, that is, straight out of the ground. Margot, welcome at last to Unpaused. Thank you very much, Judy. It's lovely to be here. Can you describe exactly what Margot McKinney, the business is, and what it's famous for? Well, Judy, that's a very interesting question. I think that if people were to think about Margot McKinney, they would think about big, colourful pieces of jewellery that you don't see anywhere else. I think that that's the core of what I do and it's where I derive amazing joy is from, from sourcing beautiful gemstones, rare and important gemstones, usually of some brilliant colour, and and making them into a unique piece of jewellery. Well, in the story, Margot, I can't ignore your forebears because the McKinney name has been synonymous with retail in Australia for four generations and it eventually became a national brand when it bought Hardy Brothers back 
was that in the 80s or 90s? In 1988. 1988. Mm. If you went back to your family's original business that you must have grown up alongside, was there a particular spark that you could remember that fired your young imagination and which might help to explain the genesis of the business today? There's not a day goes by where I don't think about my forebears. My forebears are my guiding light. And I think that my great-grandfather was very adventurous and brave to come out from Northern Ireland in 1884 to find his fortune on the goldfield, as so many people did. And as I like to say, when that didn't pan out the way that he had expected it might, and he found himself on a train going from North Queensland back to Brisbane, and the train stopped in Toowoomba for longer than anybody had anticipated. He got off the train and thought that he would have a haircut, but there was no barber shop, but there was an empty shop. So he signed the lease on the empty shop, got back on the train, went to Brisbane and went to S. Hoffnung and Sons, the wholesalers, and bought everything that he needed to open a barber shop, notwithstanding he'd never cut anybody's hair before. (laughs) So I think that he recognised a need in, in a town, and that's how the business started. And I think that that's really what my family has always done. I think that, you know, we are 139 years old this year, and, and my nephew is now in the business, so we're a, a fifth-generation family business, which is very unusual. But I think that we are still here doing what we're doing because forebears not only recognised when an opportunity was presented and acted on it, but were not sentimental about dropping a part of the business off when it was no longer working. And I think that that's where a lot of businesses can come undone if they keep doing things the same way and not adapt. So I think that's why we're still here doing what we're doing. And what about the jewellery and the fine goods that the business would have sold when you were growing up? Because as I understand it, McKinney business in Toowoomba sort of really serviced the the families on the properties out west and provided all of the necessaries for quite a high lifestyle in terms of entertaining and the like. What sorts of things were in McKinney's that you particularly loved? Well, when I was growing up, we sold everything, Judy. It was toys, boats, guns, sporting goods, cameras, furniture, electrical goods, bedding. My father started the first electrical discount warehouse, but we always sold beautiful fine china, silverware, crystal and jewellery. And it was my grandfather who had introduced jewellery to the business. And during the war, a business had to have a license to sell diamonds, and my grandfather had a license. Mm. And so diamonds, sapphires, rubies, emeralds, beautiful Japanese pearls, they were a very important part of our business. And yes, McKinney's was a store in Toowoomba where you could go to get all of those beautiful things. And we still have almost daily people coming into the store and saying, oh, I remember the store in Toowoomba and I remember the store in Drapilli and that's where we got all our wedding presents. And whenever you needed a beautiful gift, you went to McKinney's. Mm. And I can remember my father, we had a coffee shop in the store in Toowoomba. And my father was a great believer that you had to give people as many reasons to visit your retail establishment as possible. So that's why he had a coffee shop. And he also, in the 
1960s and 70s had a, I guess, the forerunner of an airport lounge. So in Toowoomba, he had a, a lounge where if you came in from the country for the day, you could leave your suitcases, your shopping. He had a payphone in there. You could, if you were picking the children up from boarding school, that's where everybody sort of met. So it was from that background where I learned the craft of retail mm. and I still call myself a shopkeeper to this day because I think that I am a shopkeeper and that was an important start in my life and it was where it really piqued my interest. I love being in the store. I love talking to customers when they come in. That's what I just love doing. The store must have had an amazing global network of suppliers. That must have been interesting for you to be exposed to in Toowoomba, which was a regional town. It would have been small in those days. Yes. So from the very early days, my grandfather would import, you've got two shipments a year of Royal Dalton and Wedgwood and Webb Corbett and Stuart Crystal and Waterford. So there would be two shipments and that would arrive in huge crates and all the staff would stay behind at night and, and unpack this and dis merchandise it and display it. And my father went to visit many of those factories. In fact, he worked in the Royal Dalton factory in the Rouge Flambe area, which was a really, they don't make Rouge Flambe anymore. But I grew up knowing all of those brands. Lord Wedgwood would come to visit Toowoomba. Michael Dalton would come to visit Toowoomba because we were the largest retailers of those brands in Australia, mm. which was very impressive. Mm. And so you did work for the family firm for quite a while. And you did work when it took over Hardy's, didn't you? Yes, yes. So my sisters and I all started working in the business when we were at school on Saturdays and Christmas holidays. We loved it. Mm. Sally and Jane and I just loved it and worked in all the departments. And I can remember working in the packing department one, mm. one Christmas. And then when I left school, it was the first year of a, a new entrance exam into university was in 1976 and I didn't get enough points to go to university and even the teachers at Fairhome couldn't quite understand that but I just didn't and i had been a good student and I think my parents didn't really know what to do with me so we had very good friends who lived in Pasadena and my father contacted Eric Mack and I ended up going to university in Los Angeles at the tender age of 17. I lived in close to downtown LA. And I did a course in retailing and marketing, which was something that certainly wasn't available in Australia in those days. And I was only there for a year, but it was a really important year in my life. Here I was from Toowoomba, which was a small town. And I, as a 17-year-old, went to live in Los Angeles. And I pretty quickly learned about small fish, big bowl. Mm -hmm. And I also think all these years later, doing business in America, that at that early age, I started to feel comfortable with doing business in America or being in America. So that was how I started. And then when I came back to Australia after living in LA, I went to do a course in business and and just didn't like it and, and just... One day I thought, I'm just not going to go because I was working in the store. We were busy in the store and I just kept going mm. to work. So mm. it was all I've ever wanted to do. I've never thought about doing anything else. I've never worked for anybody else but 
but in the family. So, But you must have been building up layer by layer by layer by layer a lot of knowledge about jewellery in particular and especially with the move to acquire the Hardy Brothers stores. I mean, that was a whole other history to accommodate and learn about and learn to love, wasn't it? Yes, and it was a very brave thing to do in, in 1988 when my parents bought Hardy Brothers from Christopher Scase. So we went from having a store in Toowoomba and Brisbane to having stores in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, the Gold Coast and Port Douglas. And my father was the royal warrant holder to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. We had very prestigious trophies to make, including the Melbourne Cup, Mm. the Queen's Cup, all sorts of racing trophies for all around Australia. And Hardy Brothers was a very special business to own then. We felt very much like the custodians of it and that we just had to continue to do what the Hardy family had done, which was to provide generations of families with beautiful jewellery and to follow the ethos of that business. And we took our family ethos into Hardy Brothers and loved every minute of owning that business. My parents did buy that business when interest rates were 19%. Mm. So it was not without its struggle as well. Mm. And and I learned a lot about running a business. And I went to Sydney and looked after the Sydney stores. I would go to Melbourne most weeks. My sister Jane was in Melbourne and Sally was in Brisbane. As a matter of fact, Judy, we used to joke that we should call it Hardy Sisters. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so to skip forward, Margot, you would have had a fantastic life doing all of that. Hardy's was riding high. You were making the Melbourne Cup. People were buying pearls and really expensive jewellery. They were heady days, I'm sure. So if we skip forward to being 40-ish and finding that it was time to end a marriage... And because you were living overseas, I think, it meant coming home, and in that case meant coming home to your parents. That must have been, from the heady days at McKinney's and Hardy's, that must have been quite a sobering moment. Well, I didn't really think about it that way, Judy. I'd been through five-year marriage that certainly a lot of it was very unhappy. It was an amazing experience. I lived in Malaysia, so I'm pleased of that experience because mm-hmm. it, it was a fascinating country to live in and I made some very good friends with whom I'm still in contact today. But, yes, yes, moving home, it, well, quite frankly, it was a relief to be out of the unhappy marriage. Mm. And and I'm not a parent. I don't have children, but I'm sure that part of being a parent is having your door open whenever mm. necessary to your children. And I came to live with my parents again. But I do remember being out one night with some friends and I got home, I think, at about midnight. And the next morning, my father was making a cup of tea in the kitchen. He said, what time, what sort of time do you think it is to be getting home at midnight? And I thought, oh, I think it's time to move out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be easy, Margot. And just tell me, when you were living in Malaysia, did you sort of keep your hand in with jewellery? Yes, I did. You were doing some work up there? Yes, absolutely. What, designing work? Yes, designing. And nobody sold Australian pearls in Kuala Lumpur. So I had a really fascinating business sourcing from our traditional suppliers of of pearls. 
and making beautiful pieces of jewellery and selling lovely strands of South Sea pearls to some pretty wonderful people mm. in Malaysia, including the royal family at the time. So mm. it was, I never stopped. You never stopped? No. You walked away basically with nothing from mm. the marriage. So how did you actually start? Because the whole premise of Unpaused is, of course, how do you go from a standing start to changing your life and taking that first step and starting to move towards something that's very fulfilling. Looking back, what do you think was the crucial first step that you took? I felt that what I wanted to do was to sell my jewellery in America. And I think it's one of those, be careful what you wish for, because it might actually happen. And I don't think I dwelled deeply or thought deeply about it. I think it was just something that I, I just thought I wanted to do. And, and um, why do you think that is? I think having already had businesses in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, the Gold Coast and Port Douglas with Hardy Brothers, that uh, I really felt that I've always had this ethos that there are 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. And that if to do something in a bigger market is probably going to be, that was just what attracted me, to do something in a bigger market. So given that everybody has a limited amount of time, I, I felt as though I might as well take on a bigger challenge. And I always knew that Neiman Marcus was where I wanted to be. And I spent a couple of years in court fighting with my ex-husband. And then I, I had a, a very small amount of money. I had about $20,000. I started to create a small collection of jewellery, and that was really how I started. I'm very fortunate to to be in our family business because we have incredible relationships with very long-standing suppliers, and that's a big part of why I've been able to do what I've been able to do. It's these, you know, long-standing relationships with gem cutters and the finest workrooms in the world and pearl suppliers. And so just to stop you there, just because I'm interested myself. Mm. So you source the gems from a specific agent who works in a particular market. Say it's a sapphire, for instance. How would you go about well, sourcing we have, that? Well, I, I work with gem cutters. My most important gem cutter is based in Ida Oberstein in southern Germany. Mm. And he's a fifth generation gem cutter. They source the rough from the mines. Mm. And, and then they're cut in Ida Oberstein or in Bangkok. Bangkok is also a big cutting centre for gemstones where the workmanship is really very, very good. So I don't go to the mines, but I deal directly with the cutters. So that's how you started. You had a relationship with mm. a gem cutter and you had a small pool of money and you had access to people who could basically finish the stone for you and then you put it into a setting. Yes. Mm. Mm. And in terms of the setting, are they made here or are they made elsewhere? We do have workrooms here. I always make things where the best people are to make them. So a lot of my gold work is done in Italy and Germany. They do beautiful gold work in Germany. We have a, a very good workroom in Bangkok with the people we've been working with for decades mm. and their work is very fine and very high quality. And for instance, if you have hundreds of gemstones to set into a piece of jewellery, then they do very, very good work and a lovely people to deal with. And all of these people we have very deep relationships with. They're all close friends. I mean, it's 
on both sides, on the supply side and the sales side, all of these people with whom we deal become very close friends. So you put together a small collection of your work? Mm, so I had a couple of really big pearl necklaces with big coloured gemstones. I remember one of my favourite ones was a, a lemon topaz and a pretty rose quartz and then a blue topaz. And I had pink and gold and white pearls in between these three jewelled embellishments. And I had matching earrings and matching rings. So they were all big, colourful pieces of jewellery. And I'd been working on this for quite some time. And Peter Kedwell, who by this stage, he and I were going out. And we went to a, we're both members of YPO, the Young Presidents Organisation. And Peter is a member of the graduate organisation, CEO. And we went to a CEO conference in Las Vegas. And it was at the Wynn Hotel. And Elaine Wynn was there and she noticed my jewellery and said to me that I should go to their Wynn jewellery store in the hotel and perhaps I'd like to show the manager there my jewellery, which I did. And then Elaine Wynn asked me if I would like to come back for the NetJets weekend that they were holding in a couple of months and do a Mm. a display of my jewellery in Wynn. And I said, oh, I'd love to. And so from Las Vegas, we went to Dallas and Peter and I on that same trip. And Peter, unbeknown to me, went into Neiman Marcus and into the precious jewellery department and started talking to the manager, Patty, and said to Patty, oh, you really should meet my wife. She's fourth generation in her family's jewellery company and she's a jewellery designer. And I could see Patty go, oh, ho-hum, not another husband who Mm. thinks his wife's a genius. And Patty said, look, I'm sure your wife's very, I'm sure that your jewellery is really lovely, but the process takes about six months and really you need to put together a portfolio, which we would present to the head buyer. And Peter, who is in the fruit and vegetable business and his stock goes off overnight, Mm. said, oh, but we're only here until tomorrow. And with that, Patty says now that she looked me up and down and looked at the jewellery that I was wearing. She went into her office and phoned Lisa Haddo, who was the head buyer for Precious Jewellery, and said to Lisa, look, I think maybe you should see this woman. So... I had an appointment at three o'clock that afternoon Mm -hmm. with the head bar and I sat in her office with my 20 pieces of jewellery and she looked at them about 45 minutes later, nervous 45 minutes later for me. She said, well, I think these will be perfect for 14 of our 40 stores. And I nearly fell off the chair. I'd never been on that side of the desk before. I'd always been on the other side of the buying desk. I really was astounded. So here I was in the dream business that I'd always wanted to do business with and suddenly being accepted as a jewellery brand. And Margot, when they say 14 of the 40 stores, what characterised those 14 stores compared with the rest? They were their A stores. So they were their most important stores. Mm. And so these jewellery pieces are big and no doubt expensive. So they've got a customer that can and will want to buy that sort of really substantial jewellery piece. Mm. And are we talking seven figures? Five, six, 
figures at that stage and now seven figures, up to seven figures, yes. And Margot, is anyone else doing what you do? Because these pieces are really big, really bold, really colourful and mix very expensive, different stones and pearls and things, don't they? Yes. Neiman Marcus said at the time that they didn't have anybody else who Mm. was doing what I was doing. And that's why it piqued their interest because they have always scarred the world for the most exclusive, finest and things that they can present to their clients and collectors as something that they can't find anywhere else. So they said that I was really the first designer to create those big colourful pieces of jewellery. They also said that they didn't have very many brand partners who were capable of, of that fine design and I always think I should let somebody else say this, but there's nobody else here. I'll have to say it myself. (laughs) Who can also run a company, but who also love standing behind the counter and connecting with the clients and collectors. And they said, Margot, we don't have very many people who tick all of those boxes. So talking about the clients then, what do you tell them? What do you talk about when you're talking to them? Because I can't imagine these purchases would be very quick. There'd be a lot of learning to do and understanding to do before you leapt into a big purchase like that. Well, some of them are very quick, are they? Judy. Yes, oh. yes. Sometimes people just fall in love with something and make it theirs straight away. Mm. But I just talk about the story. Every piece of jewellery has a story. And when you know the story behind it and where the gemstones come from and where the pearls come from and how it was created and what the design inspiration was for it, then it takes on a different life. Well, I think in your retrospect, in the book that accompanied that, you told some of these stories very, very well. And I'd like you to tell the story of the Australian South Sea pearls and why they're so important in the global market. What sets them apart and how do you access those pearls? Well, Australian pearls are the finest pearls in the world. And it's a very small industry in Australia that is very closely monitored for sustainability. And there are only about 13 farms in Australia. And most of them are owned by the Paspali family, which have been in pearling since 1940, an incredibly important family. But there is one independently owned farm in Australia in East Arnhem Land that's owned by R.G. Ellies, Wimmelarantana, and R.G. is fifth generation in his family's pearling and gem business. My grandfather used to do business with his grandmother, Edith Wimmelarantana. And one day, several years ago, R.G. phoned me and said, Margot, would you like to come up to my pearl farm? And I said, what do you mean your pearl farm, R.G.? And He had just acquired this pearl farm from, it had gone into receivership and it was in East Arnhem Land, which was a very unusual place to have a pearl farm. Most of them are on the northwest coast of Australia. And I said, well, Archie, I'd love to. When? And he said, well, can you come tomorrow? And I said, oh my goodness, I had just got back from America the day before and I thought about it and I I said, well, how do I get there? And he said, will you fly from Brisbane to Cairns to Gove? And then there's a bus and then a helicopter and then a boat. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So I said yes. And he said that he had asked several other people from overseas if they would like to go to the Pearl Farm and they'd all prevaricated and not gone. Mm. And I went. Being a girl, I said, 
wonder what I should wear. And uh, he said, just bring very old shoes and nothing very dressed up. <laughs> so off I went on this great adventure. And I lived on the Pearling Mothership. I didn't realise at the time that the captain had vacated his cabin. So I had the captain's cabin. And it was the most amazing experience. I said that I would go for two or maybe three days and I ended up staying for a week and didn't really want to come home because the life was really very alluring. It's dictated by the sunrise and and sunset. And I also didn't know that I'd been invited for harvest, which is the most important time at a pearl farm. It's also a time when... Well, not very many people get to go to a pearl farm, full stop, but nobody gets to go during harvest because there's a lot. It's the busiest time on a farm. There's also a lot of proprietary information on display. It's the time when the technicians are there performing the operations on the Maxima Pinctata oyster. Does it just happen once a year? Yes, it happens once a year. So at harvest time, the wire frames that the eight oysters have been living in suspended on long lines in the water for two years. They're brought up the night before the harvest and rested in a big tank on board the mothership. And they're rested because the pearl farmer needs the oyster to open slightly, just normally open and relax because the next morning it's about to undergo an operation. So doctors like their patients to be relaxed before an operation. We like our oysters to be relaxed. And then the next morning, the technicians will take their oysters and make a tiny incision in the reproductive area of the oyster and almost put literally a silver spoon in there, take the pearl out and at the same time replace the nucleus in the oyster with a new little nucleus that will grow another pearl. And pearls stay in the oyster for two years. You can't leave them in for any longer, hoping that they get bigger because the oyster might get a thing like peritonitis and spit the pearl out. So it's completely up to Mother Nature. And the reason why Australian pearls are the finest pearls in the world is because of this extraordinary oyster that they grow in that grows to about the size of a dinner plate and the purity of the water that they grow in. The water is pristine and they are remarkable. They are the finest pearls in the world. And why is a string of those pearls so valuable? Apart from their intrinsic value, each pearl separately, why is a collection of pearls on a string so valuable? Well, you know, one might wait 10 years to put together a very important strand of pearls. I did create some years ago a strand of perfectly round, perfectly matching pearls that were over 20 millimetres and it took 10 harvests Mm. to collect the pearls. So one has to be incredibly patient when putting together very fine strands of pearls and I have a great appreciation for round pearls. I also love Baroque pearls because I think that they have such charm and such Mm. character and putting together very important strands of Baroque pearls is also an exercise in patience. You're known for those, Margot. I don't think I've ever seen you in perfect pearls. I think I've only ever seen you in the more dramatic Baroque pearls. And so I called you bold in everything that you do, Margot. What would you say has given you so much confidence? Confidence is something that so many women struggle with. 
What do you think is the key to your confidence? Well, isn't it funny because I don't feel overly confident, but I love what I do. I love working with the people I work with. Being involved in a family business gives me great confidence. Mm. My nephew is in the business. I work with my sisters. My husband has been a great supporter of mine and incredibly supportive and wonderful for my confidence. Mm. I look back on my family's heritage and feel very grateful for that and the guidance of my parents. So I think that that's what, and I guess being successful Mm. in in the business gives me confidence as well. But I always, I think deeply about decisions that I make and the growth of the business and, and follow my gut. And what about confidently wearing what you wear? Confidence in your bearing and in the way you dress and how you assert yourself in that way? Well, I think in the early days when I was doing business in America and Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman as well, I knew that it was important that I stood out and that I think that, and I say this often to women, that when we walk into a room, what we're wearing says a lot about us before we utter a word. We all learnt when we were growing up that you get one opportunity to make a first impression. And I think that that's really important. I like to dress confidently. I hope I have inherited some style from my mother and my father. And I'm not frightened. My husband calls my jewellery my armour. And I do feel that wearing beautiful jewellery, wearing good jewellery, and it does not have to be huge jewellery, but just wearing a beautiful piece of jewellery says something about the triumphs and trials and tribulations of our life. And as we get a little bit older, I think that a beautiful piece of jewellery is a wonderful thing to have. It, It shows the success that we've had in life. And I think that it's a lovely symbol. It can be a symbol of something that might have been given as a gift of love or something that somebody might have bought for themselves, acquired for themselves. But I think it's an important thing to have. I like to say, Judy, you and I are similar ages. And if we don't have it now, then when? We like to provide our collectors and our clients with some pretty special experiences. And I think that that's a lovely way to connect our clients and suppliers, my pearl farmer and gem cutters. And a couple of times a year, we do some exciting things. And for the last six, I've been a major sponsor for G'day USA in Los Angeles. And that's something that our best collectors are invited to every January and we have three or four days in Beverly Hills and do some pretty exciting things mm-hmm. and and also in April of this year I was a major sponsor for the Prince's Trust Global Gala in New York and there were some amazing celebrities and we took a wonderful group of collectors to New York for that event as well so And then everybody's there and they have an opportunity to wear their jewellery and everybody sees what everybody else is wearing and and it's fun. But also, Margot, these collaborations have served your business well, haven't they? I'm sure they've returned much more than you've put into it, not just to create the customer experience, but because 
of your positioning with your peers and your exposure to those very high-end markets. It's really clever. Well, I think that it goes back to doing business in a different way and recognising new ways of doing business. Neiman Marcus, 10 years ago, certainly didn't have an experience department, and they do now, and it's a very important part of their business. It's so interesting, Margot, that you've kept true to your Brisbane roots, you know, via Toowoomba, but were you ever tempted to take the business elsewhere? close the doors here and open in LA or New York? No, no, never. No, Brisbane is very important. Australia is very important. So if you looked back to your 40-year-old self, Margot, with all the things you've learned over the last couple of decades, what would be the best advice you could give on the basis of what you've learned from all of this? Oh, my goodness. I probably, as I head toward my mid-60s, I might have put my foot on the pedal a bit more, Mm. but I don't know that I could have. My husband would say I couldn't have done anything faster. While it would be difficult to replicate the retail wisdom and experience that Margot drank in at her father's knee and later by his side at McKinney's, there are other things in Margot's story that point to how she came back in her 40s to create the Margot McKinney business in her own image and make it sing. What came up again and again was that it is family first and always. Father John, Mother Anne, sisters Sally and Jane, and now nephew Andrew McKinney Welsh, and her greatest stalwart, husband Peter, all have had fundamental roles in Margot's success and she never hesitates to acknowledge it. Margot's determination to think big and go after the US as her market and then really back herself when it came to designing the pieces that would come to identify her is striking. That degree she began at 17 at a Los Angeles university clearly lit a spark in her that the US was the mountain to climb. To America she went, armed with her first collection, wearing her most extravagant pieces out and about. They were so eye-catching as to attract attention wherever she went, but it was the virtuosity of Margot's designs and her confidence that where she led, others would follow, not to mention the persistence of Peter, her husband, that won the day for her at Neiman Marcus. That no other jewellery designer crossing Neiman Marcus's threshold at the time was doing what Margot was doing says it all. Then there is Margot's daring do. I don't know that I would have jumped to get back on a plane the day after returning from a trip to the States to head to East Arnhem Land to a pearl farm, but go she did by plane, bus, helicopter and boat. And from that single decision, so much followed. Nurturing suppliers like Argielli's, a fifth generation pearl farmer, who became so critical to her business, has been a hallmark of the McKinney businesses across the generations, and Margot's is no exception. She sees them all as part of the family and has introduced many of them to her customers so that they too can hear firsthand how a pearl is harvested, a sapphire is cut, or an opal is first revealed. There is no sense of territoriality here. She is sure of her footing with them, and no doubt they love seeing what she's conjured from the precious raw materials they first supplied. Until I went to Margot's exhibition last year, I hadn't appreciated that Australia's South Sea pearls are prized as the best in the world, and just how respected Margot is for her eye and expertise. I now see why Patty Mitchell at Neiman Marcus was so impressed when Margot walked into the store, sat on the other side of the buyer's desk, 
opened her bag to display her glorious wares and started talking shop. Thanks once again to Leonie Marsh, the producer of Unpaused, and to Jason Milhouse in the studio. This was a rare interview that I was able to do face-to-face with Margot, and it was especially memorable for the jewels she characteristically wore on the day. All routine for Margot, I suppose, but it certainly made Jason's day and mine. Until next time, it's farewell from me. Mm -hmm.